0: Learn Out Loud's personal growth podcast will periodically showcase classic and contemporary self-development audio. Learn how to achieve your goals, improve your relations, increase your creativity, and much more. For a full listing of our podcasts, please visit www.learnoutloud.com podcast. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course Communication Matters Number no. 1. He Said, She Said, Women, Men, and Language, taught by Professor Deborah Tannen. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, linguistics professor and best-selling author Deborah Tannen describes many of the basic differences in communication between men and women. She starts with an example she discovered when examining the conversations of kids and teenagers. Girls tended to talk to each other face-to-face, while boys generally sat at angles or parallel and looked around the room while they talked to each other. She mentions many other patterns of behavior in the communication habits of men and women and hopes that by becoming more aware of these differences, we can become more understanding in our communication with the opposite sex.
1: Recorded Books is pleased to present The Modern Scholar, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Davidson, and I'll be your host. Today, we begin a course from the Communication Matters series. He Said, She Said women, men, and language. Your professor is Dr. Deborah Tannen, university professor at Georgetown University. Professor Tannen is an internationally recognized scholar who has received fellowship grants from the Rockefeller Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Science Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Professor Tannen is the advisory editor of the series Oxford Studies in Gender and Language, and she is associate editor of the journal Language and Society, as well as serving on the boards of many other journals. Dr. Tannen makes frequent guest appearances on network television, including programs such as 2020, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, The Today Show, Good Morning America, ABC World News Tonight, and CNN. She's written articles for most major magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, Time, Newsweek, and the Harvard Business Review. Her book, You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months as the number one nonfiction title. It's been translated into 29 languages and serves as the recommended text for this course. Her 18 other books, including the award-winning Talking from 9 to 5, Women and Men at Work, have all garnered critical acclaim. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and, yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin. He Said, She Said, Women, Men, and Language. Lecture 1. He Said, She Said a framework for understanding conversations between men and women. And now, Professor Tannen.
2: When I wrote You Just Don't Understand, I had no idea that the example that everybody was going to respond to most strongly was the question, why don't men like to stop and ask for directions? Now, that's something that's repeated very often. Uh, In fact, people have sent me cocktail napkins that say real men don't, ask directions. There are jokes going around. For example, why did Moses wander in the desert for so many years? He didn't want to stop and ask for directions. And the one that perhaps is the funniest to me, why does it take so many sperm to find just one egg? Well, you know the answer. Now, this is something that's repeated very often, but uh, when I put that example, and you just didn't understand, I had no idea that it was Such a widespread phenomenon that there's a direction-asking crisis in the country. Part of the reason I didn't realize how widespread it was is that my own husband does like to stop and ask for directions, and often I'm the one who says, no, no, dear, I can find it on the map. I like to read maps better than he does, and that's not typical of women and men, but... There are ways in which all of us are are not typical. I like to start with this example because in these lectures, I'm going to be talking about ways of speaking that are common among women, ways of speaking that are common among men. But I'm going to keep in mind and try to remind you from time to time as well that nothing is true of all women and men. In addition to effects of gender, there are many other influences on our styles. And I'll be talking about some of those other influences, too. But these lectures are going to focus on ways of speaking that are typical of women and typical of men in the American context. My larger goal in this series of lectures is to understand the patterns by which women and men use language and, therefore, to enhance our understanding of language in general and of human behavior in general. So in that sense, it's like an introduction to what I call interactional sociolinguistics. That is, the social influences on how we use language on our everyday lives. But I'm told by students who have taken my courses that this understanding helps them in their everyday lives because every aspect of our lives involves talking to people of the other sex in our personal relationships, our families, at work. uh, Just about anything that you need to get done is done in part through talk. I want to start by telling you about the research project that I was involved in that first got me thinking about communication differences between women and men. Some years ago, I was invited by a psychologist named Bruce Dorval to take part in a research project that he had organized. It was funded by the Social Science Research Council. Bruce Dorval was interested in how girls and boys and then women and men talk to their best friends. So he set up an experiment that was funded by the Social Science Research Council, where he invited pairs of best friends to come into his office and talk to each other. He then got funding to invite a number of scholars in a whole range of disciplines, and I was the linguist invited to take part in the project, to look at his videotapes and do various analyses of them. At that time, the phenomenon I was interested in was repetition. So I planned to look at these videotapes of boys and girls at different ages talking to each other, to look at the patterns of how they picked up each other's words and wove those words into their own discourse. And I did, incidentally, write a book in which I uh, reported on that research. It's called Talking Voices. So that's what I thought that I'd be looking at in these videotapes of boys and girls at different ages talking to their best friends. But when I watched the tapes that Dr. Dorval sent me, what I could not get over was the pattern of nonverbal communication, the physical orientation that the children and then the college students assumed in talking to each other. At every age, 5-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, college students, the girls sat face-to-face, leaned in, and kept their... Gaze and their physical orientation directly focused on each other. At every age, the boys and then the young men sat at angles or parallel and they looked around the room. The pattern was so constant across these various ages that I was really quite blown away by it. And I mentioned it to colleagues at the time. And one colleague to whom I mentioned it was a psychologist and a family therapist. And she said, Yeah. I noticed the same thing when couples come to me in family therapy. The men don't look at their wives. The men don't look at me. The men are always disengaged. And this set my danger signals off because if this is how young boys, older boys, young men sat when they talked to each other, how accurate or fair was it to say that they were disengaged? In fact, one of the pairs of uh, 10th grade boys whose tapes I had looked at had the most self-revealing intimate discussion of any that I had looked at in those tapes. One was talking about how he really uh, felt bad that they weren't as close friends anymore as they were. The other was talking about how bad he felt because his girlfriend had told him he had a drinking problem and he was trying to figure out whether he really did or not. And yet, Throughout this entire self-disclosing, intimate conversation, they never looked at each other once, and they were sprawled out in the way you see teenage boys seated, as if they were riding in a car, their eyes were fastened ahead or or looking about but never looking at each other. And in fact, I suspect that because the conversation was so personal and self-revealing, they were even less likely to look directly at each other. So when my colleague, who was a family therapist, concluded that men were disengaged because they didn't look at their wives and they didn't look at her, she was applying assumptions about ways of speaking that would have been accurate for her, would probably have been accurate for most of her female patients, but were not accurate for or may not be accurate for all the men that were coming to see her in therapy. This is the theme that's going to be running through all the discussions that we're going to be having in this series of lectures. We Assume that others mean what we would mean if we said the same thing in the same way. And when we talk to others whose conversational styles are the same as ours, those conclusions are quite likely to be pretty accurate. When we talk to those whose conversational styles differ, then those conclusions may well not be accurate, and we may be drawing unfair or inaccurate conclusions about what the person meant the effect that they intended to have on us, and what they're feeling and thinking when they talked in that way. The conversational style difference I'm going to be focusing on are those styles that are influenced by gender. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, affects how you use language to accomplish the various tasks we try to accomplish through language in our everyday lives. I'm going to be developing this metaphor of conversations between women and men as being like cross cultural communication by drawing on my own original research, as well as research by others in fields such as psychology, sociology, anthropology, and education. Some of the topics I'll be exploring in these lectures include questions like who talks more, men or women? Who interrupts more, women or men? What do women and men tend to talk about? Who is more indirect in saying what we mean? Why would anyone be indirect in saying what we mean? Where do these differences come from? How early do they start? In answering all these and many other questions, I will be describing and giving examples of patterns in the way women and men tend to use language in our everyday lives, at work, in personal relationships, and just in conversations that we have throughout the day. I'll be tracing the patterns to the way boys and girls learn to use language growing up, and I'll be exploring in some detail the processes by which humans use language to express meaning, to accomplish tasks, to negotiate relationships. If we think of culture as ways of talking and ways of behaving that we learn as children growing up in a given environment, We can trace these cultural differences back to the way boys and girls learn to use language growing up when they play with their same-sex friends. It was that experience working with the videotapes that Bruce Dorval had made of boys and girls talking to their best friends at different ages that first focused my research on the issue of gender, but my research had been focusing on what I call conversational style for many, many years. Because my training is in the field of linguistics, my own research has always focused on the role of language in social relationships. Sometimes I'm called a sociolinguist for that reason. My research methods have always involved recording conversations, transcribing the conversations that are recorded, and studying the transcript. Some of these are naturally occurring conversations that I happen to be part of, and that's an accepted research method in that field. Sometimes they are conversations recorded by students in my courses or colleagues in their research. Sometimes they're conversations that take place on television. Sometimes the conversations come from reality TV series in which documentary filmmakers recorded people in their casual conversations. All my examples come from actual interactions that people took part in. This method is somewhat different from the method you might find among experimental psychologists, where the goal is to get a very large number of people to take part in an experiment, to uh, choose those people by random sampling methods, and uh, then tally their responses according to statistical methods. There are advantages to that approach in that you have many people in there in your sample, but there are also disadvantages in that the behavior that you're studying is not the behavior that would necessarily occur when people are simply going about their lives. So the method that I prefer has the advantage of studying real conversations taking place naturally among real people, but it's a case study approach. It's an interpretive approach. We sometimes call it hermeneutic um, rather than experimental. It also differs from the research methods of clinical psychologists who would base their study on interviews with people who come to them because of various concerns that they have in their lives. And in that case, you're basing your findings on what people tell you about their lives. We call that self-report. And again, linguists prefer to observe how people actually behave rather than how they tell you they behave, because we know from our research that people will often not realize how they actually use language. They may say, I would never talk like that, but then when you record their conversation, you find that they actually do. What I will be presenting here based on my own research is what the anthropologist Clifford Gertz calls a cases and interpretations approach rather than an experimental approach, the interpretive approach was particularly congenial to me because my own background was in English literature. My, both my bachelor's and my first master's degrees were in English literature, by which you take a work of art, a short story, a novel, a play, and by a close analysis of the language, you interpret what the meaning of those works of art might be. It's really quite similar, in a way, to what I would do with a conversation now, that is, record a conversation, transcribe it, and then look very closely at the language and the patterns of language that appear in order to interpret what we can say about what's going on and what the results of the interaction are. Many people define linguistics as the science of language. I feel that I'm working in that tradition because by always focusing on the actual language that was naturally produced in interaction, the analysis is a scientific approach, but at the same time, it's interpretive and has something in common with, you might say, literary criticism or, or a case study approach in anthropology, because the interpretive process is what's really important. Throughout this course, I'll be developing this metaphor that we can think of conversations between women and men as a kind of cross-cultural communication because boys and girls learn language as children growing up playing with other children of the same sex. It would be useful then for me to just give you here a very brief summary of what researchers have found to distinguish the way boys and girls use language in their play. And I'm referring here to the work of anthropologists and sociologists, such as Marjorie Harness Goodwin, who have written about boys and girls at play. What they find is that typically a girl has a best friend and they spend a lot of time talking and telling secrets. And it's who you tell your secrets to that determines who's your best friend. The girls also tend to downplay the status differences between them. Certainly there are high and low status girls. Anyone who's ever been a girl or had a daughter knows that. But they tend to downplay it because if a girl acts like she's better than the others, the other girls will accuse her of thinking she's really something and won't like her. The girls also tend to make suggestions rather than give orders. So, for example, as Marjorie Harness Goodwin has found, The girls are more likely to say something like, let's do this, rather than do this. The boys play very differently. They tend to play in larger groups, and it's the activity that's central. The high-status boys and low-status boys are very obvious in the group. The high-status boys will give orders. They'll push the low-status boys around. And part of what gives them their high status is that they can give these direct orders and make them stick. So whereas the girl who gives orders is bossy, the boy who gives orders and makes them stick is the leader. Boys will also use language to maintain their status in the group by, for example, telling stories, telling jokes, different ways that they talk which can put them in center stage and keep them in center stage. So the other boys will try to challenge the boy who has center stage, and so they have to learn not only to hold forth in that way, but also to deflect challenges. These are the patterns that we'll see playing out as we discuss the differences that we find in the way adult women and men use language in their lives. As a result, boys and girls, and then we carry this into our adult lives, tend to have different sensitivities girls will punish another girl by leaving her out because if you're telling secrets, you can't allow a stranger to be there or someone that you don't want in the group. So girls become very sensitive to any indication that anyone is leaving them out or pushing them away. Because the boy who has low status in the group really does have his life made miserable by being pushed around, boys and then men are more likely to be sensitive to something else to any indication that they're being put down or pushed around because that does end up impinging on their independence. In the next lecture, I'll go into a little more detail about these different ways that boys and girls learn to use language growing up by playing with other children of the same sex. It's often said that girls are more sensitive than boys. I think boys and girls and women and men are all sensitive, but we tend to be sensitive to different implications. So... Women and girls seem to be very sensitive to any indication that they're being left out or pushed away, whereas boys and men are more sensitive to being put down or pushed around. This is the uh, framework that I'm going to be developing in talking about a whole range of uh, contexts in which we use language in our lives. But let me give you a few examples of the very... Let's take this conversation that really took place between a woman and a man. He called her up. He was away on a business trip, and he called her up, and he said, "Um, I got an email from my old high school buddy, and uh, he's going to be in town Friday night uh, the day I get back, and so I'm going to have dinner with him that night. His wife was really hurt by this because she had been looking forward to his return from the business trip and had assumed that they would have dinner together that night. She didn't really object so much that he would prefer to have dinner with his high school friend because the friend would be in town just that night. But she would have preferred if he had presented it as a, a question, a topic for discussion, rather than a fait accompli. In other words, perhaps he could have said, Oh, I got this email from my friend, and would it be okay with you if I had dinner with him? And then we can celebrate I reunion on Saturday night. When she told him that, he said, I can't tell my friend. I need to ask my wife for permission. So for her, we're a team. We're connected to each other. And if you just make a decision, you're going to have dinner with someone else. It's like you're rejecting me, leaving me out, pushing me away. From his point of view, If he has to check with his wife, it calls into play a very different sensitivity, that he's not free to do what he needs to do, that he needs to, quote, ask permission, uh, as if his wife was in some kind of a hierarchical relation to him, more like a mother than a partner in life. So this difference in our assumptions about what makes a relationship close, whether it's a focus on the intimacy because you're telling each other everything or the focus on doing things together. That's one difference. And on the other hand, whether you're sensitive to any indication you're being left out or pushed away or you're sensitive to any indication that your independence is being infringed on because you're being pushed around or put down, these are themes that can explain a lot of frustrations that arise in our daily lives. So here's one example, and this is a really common one. The woman complains, we don't communicate. And the man says, we do. I don't know what you're, I tell you everything. I don't know what you're frustrated about. For her, communication means you tell me everything that's going on in your everyday life because talk is the glue that holds a relationship together. For him, communication means if we have a problem, we're going to talk about it. We don't have a problem, so there's no need to talk. Here's another scenario that plays itself out all around the country. And as reactions to my book, uh, You Just Don't Understand, indicate all around the world. A woman tells a man about a problem, something that happened at work, something that happened in a relationship with a friend. And he starts telling her how to solve the problem. She's annoyed. She protests, I don't need you to tell me how to solve the problem. I just want you to listen. And he's annoyed. Why do you want to talk about the problem if you don't want to do anything about it? Neither can really figure out why the other one is behaving in that strange way. If you understand that for women, talk is the glue that holds a relationship together, then he can understand why she wants to talk about the problem. It's a feeling that you're not alone as you go through your day. It's a feeling that somebody cares what happened during your day. It's a feeling that somebody is interested enough to listen because listening is a show of caring in itself. When she understands that he doesn't do this kind of talk, and that's why he thinks that she's uh, looking for a solution, otherwise why would she tell him, then she can be perhaps less frustrated by his offering a solution, if he does, and he can be less frustrated by her wanting to talk about a problem when she doesn't want a solution. And either of those ways of approaching it can be part of a solution. But without understanding the source of those differences, it's really hard to find a way through that quagmire. This even explains why men don't like to stop and ask for directions. For many women, if you're driving in a car, you don't know where you're going, and you stop and ask somebody directions, you make a fleeting connection to a stranger, you get where you're going, and you really haven't lost anything. For many men, when you stop and ask directions, you're saying to a stranger, I'm lost, I need your help. Can you help me? So you're putting yourself in a one-down position to a stranger, and that's very uncomfortable, because men have learned over time that if you allow yourself to be put in a one-down position, you're going to end up being pushed around, and your freedom really is compromised. And so it becomes a fairly automatic response to avoid being put in a one-down position. And that perspective, it makes sense to spend five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever it takes to find your own way. I should point out here that many men have commented to me, well, that's really not it at all. The reason I don't stop and ask for directions is because the person I'm asking probably doesn't know either. He's going to tell me the wrong thing. And clearly there's some truth to that. But what interests me is that I have never had a woman say to me, well, if I ask somebody and he doesn't know, he won't want to admit he doesn't know and he's going to tell me the wrong thing. And yet I've had many men tell me that. And so that too seems to reflect this difference between how women and men approach everyday encounters that men are more likely to assume that somebody who doesn't know the answer will not want to put themselves in a one-down position by admitting they don't know. And so they're much more likely to say something rather than than make themselves look bad that way. And, in fact, I was once um, given—I once received a letter from a reader, if you just didn't understand. She was a physician, and she said she had gotten a poor evaluation while she was in her residency program. She was the only woman in the program. And when she asked her supervising physician why, he said, well, you don't know as much as the others. And she said, what gives you that impression? And he said, well, you ask so many questions. She was sure it wasn't that she knew less, but that when she didn't know something, she asked, and that the men in the group, when they didn't know something, didn't ask. It's not clear that one way is the right way and the other way is the wrong way. We can all think of situations where it would make sense not to let on if you don't know. And the men in that group were more aware of that, that if they didn't ask, then their ignorance would not be revealed. On the other hand, there are situations where it makes sense to ask, and perhaps if you were the patient, you would rather that the resident asked rather than pretending to know, for example, the proper dosage for a medicine he's about to administer. Throughout all the examples that I'm going to be given and all the discussions we're going to have in this series of lectures, it's never going to be the case that one is clearly the right way and the other is clearly the wrong way in all situations, but some ways of speaking will be more effective in some situations and others will be more effective in others. So the key here is going to be to understand the logic behind a whole range of ways of speaking, and taking into account that the other person may be speaking in a way that uses language differently from the way you might use it. I want to make a few more caveats that you'll want to keep in mind throughout all the lectures. Although I'll be talking about styles associated with women, styles associated with men, none of these patterns I'll be describing are clear dichotomies, and that's why I use the term patterns and expressions like associated with women rather than female style, or associated with men rather than male style. In any social science study, we never find that 100% of one group is doing one thing and 0% of the other group is doing another. A finding of 60% versus 40% is a strong finding. So there are many reasons that individuals' ways of using language can vary. Gender, as I mentioned earlier, is only one influence on our styles of speaking. The other influences uh, fall into a number of categories, but those that I think of as the big five are ethnicity, regional background, social class, and age, in addition to gender. There are also many others, for example, with the profession that you're in, a psychologist versus an accountant or an engineer, sexual orientation, your place in the sibling constellation, for example, whether you're an oldest sister or a youngest brother, whether you're the only sister among brothers or the only brother among sisters. All of these things can influence your style of speaking and, of course, individual personality. So as I talk about styles associated with women and men, I'll always keep in mind and hope that you will keep in mind that gender is only one influence. But even when the pattern does not describe every individual of that uh, sex or gender, these are the patterns along which conversational styles vary. And so understanding these patterns will be helpful, whether it's typical of your style or the styles of the people you speak to uh, because of their gender or because of their ethnic background, regional background, social class, age, or any of the other differences I mentioned. Another caveat is that a pattern is not a norm. Although these differences do tend to characterize women and men, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the many men and women who don't, quote, fit that pattern. I realize that there's a risk in describing gender differences as there is in describing any differences associated with a social group. It can seem, on the one hand, to reflect stereotypes, and on the other, it can seem to reinforce stereotypes. And from that point of view, there's a danger that it can actually deepen the divide between, for example, women and men. However, as linguist Robin Lakoff points out, and I'll be referring to her work later on because she was one of the first to describe gender differences in language, if there is a problem that really is there and you keep sweeping it under the rug you are going to be tripping on that bump in the rug. So despite the fact that I'm aware of the danger of describing differences, I believe firmly, and I hope you'll be convinced as we go through these lectures, that the patterns are there, and it's better to take them into account, acknowledge them as a basis for making any changes we would like to make, rather than denying the differences in order to feel that we can make changes. Another element comes into play here that's worth mentioning right at the beginning. I sometimes think of it as the paradox of cross-cultural communication. And here's an example that represents it. An American Indian woman lawyer, her name was Abby Abinanti, explained in an interview that when she went to law school, there were those who thought that Indians and women should not be lawyers, and they created problems for her. Well, that's easy to understand. But there were also those who believed that it didn't make any difference. She could just be one of the boys, as she put it, one of the white boys. And she said that they created problems for her too. Well, that's more difficult for for us to understand. Isn't it good to simply accept her as one of the boys? Well, no, because she was different. She could never be just like the men or just like the white men. That's why it's important to address differences if they really are there. In all the lectures that follow, the ultimate goal is understanding how women's and men's uses of language will help us understand how language works in general to convey meaning, to get the jobs done that we need to do, and to negotiate relationships. Although my immediate goal is understanding human behavior, making sense of our lives, Many, many readers, as well as students in my classes, have told me that this understanding gives them more control over their lives. It gives them tools to use in improving personal relationships, as well as their situations at work. I'm going to end this lecture with a very brief example of how understanding gender patterns in itself can help. And I'll give you two examples of how that has actually worked. The example that I told you in the beginning of uh, young boys and men tending to look away, whereas young girls and women tend to look directly at each other when they talk, is one of the things that leads to frustration between women and men and leads women to complain that their husbands or boyfriends are not listening to them. One young woman in my class told me of a problem that had been ongoing. Whenever she would say to her boyfriend, I want to talk to you about something, he would lie down on the floor, close his eyes, and put his arm over his eyes. And she would be frustrated and say, you're not listening to me. You're going to sleep. And he would say, no, 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 I'm listening. Go ahead. Go ahead and they never could resolve this. It was only after looking at the videotape of the boys and girls talking and uh, taking part in our class that she realized that what he said made sense. He always said, well, when I normally I look around the room, I could get distracted. So if I really want to pay attention, I close my eyes so I can concentrate on what you're saying. She decided that in the future when he did this, she would tried to be understanding of his point of view, and she would not insist that he do it her way and look at him. And the next time this happened, indeed, he started heading for the floor, but then he sat up, looked at her, and said, okay, go ahead. And she was delighted but also surprised. And she said, how come you're doing that? And he said, now that I know why it means something to you, I'm going to try to do it. I can't guarantee that's always going to happen, but it's actually much more likely to happen that he will accommodate to what she's asking if she is not putting it in the way that her way is right and his way is wrong. Nobody wants to change when they feel that they're being told what they do is wrong. They know that there's logic to what they're doing. If you approach it from the point of view of a conversational style difference, you're much more likely to want to make the change, and at the same time, if you understand why the other person is acting the way they are. You're much more likely to find your own ways to accommodate, and I have found over the years that people are extremely creative at working out solutions once they understand the patterns that are leading to the problem. With this in mind, over the next Thirteen lectures I'll be exploring a whole range of patterns that ways of speaking can be different typically in conversations between women and men. I have tried in this lecture to give you just a taste of the approach that I'm going to be taking in the next 13 lectures and in the next lecture, lecture 2, I'll be looking in somewhat more detail on how we can see the patterns of how women and men use language in the ways children, boys and girls, learn to use language growing up.
1: This ends Lecture 1.